So those of us who are of color especially know that, you know, what we don't know can kill us. And so we are very uh, attuned to this idea that we need, we need social justice for math and we need math for social justice. And they are intertwined in the way of trying to understand how people can manipulate any number of people. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I work in the Los Angeles area. This will be year 17 in the classroom or virtual classroom, whatever, whatever the situation is. But in any case, this here is all the above. Your home for news and analysis for all matters pertaining to our world of education. Jeff, do you notice we're looking a little different today? We got some new vibes. I know, man. Check check out the new digs, right? Uh, it's all... Yes, yes. We're putting we're putting those uh, dollars folks have been sending our way. All of our amazing AOTA show supporters have helped us build these cool new home studios, man. Yes, absolutely. We very much appreciate the support. It's looking like we won't be back in our normal studio for a long time given this coronavirus crisis. So we've had to upgrade our home situations and your generous support has helped us to do that so we could keep the content flowing. Thank you so much for that. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, do consider heading over to our YouTube channel to check out the new look. All right, that's youtube.com slash all of the above. And while you're there, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. All right, Jeff, this is the start of a fresh brand new school year. So much that we could explore. Please tell us what is on the agenda for today. Well, man, well, as always, we got a good one for everybody. And uh, today we have a guest that I know you and I have both been yes. excited about having on the show for some time. Uh, he's he's a pretty big presence on Twitter. Uh, you may know him by his, his initials. He's at the JLV. Uh, he is um, Jose Wilson. Uh, math educator coming out of New York City, my former home. Uh, super excited to have him on the show today. Uh, but he's also just a fascinating personality because there's not too many folks in our profession who are both currently practitioners in the classroom and also folks who are authors, uh, you know, bloggers, who are facilitating conferences, who are, you know, really prominent in the kind of larger national discourse of our profession. Um, and Jose uh, is certainly one of those folks. So um, we're excited to have him here today. We're going to talk a bit about, you know, both his work as a middle school math educator in this kind of crazy moment we're all living through and also, uh, you know, his own professional journey and kind of the work of becoming both practitioner and, um, you know, commenter on the field of education. So it's going to be a good one. Definitely want to stick around and don't want to miss it. That's right. The teacher Gotham deserves. Man, I'm so excited for this episode. Educolor representing. We out here. Can't wait. Um, but up first, we have the Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education, particularly looking at some headlines that you might have missed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now, where we like to take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, it's that time where everybody's looking for a little bit of feedback and update on how things are going. So we got a report card. Time to hand out some, okay, some okay. grades, even if 
if interim grades. All right, grades. That's a perfectly non-controversial thing these days, grading and all of that. Um, all right, yeah. Jeff, first grade for today is an outstanding. Well, that is interesting. Uh, <laughs> outstanding is a, is a lovely adjective in the English language, Manuel. One of my favorite words. Uh, it's just not a grade. You're right. However, it is an overall holistic evaluation that a student might receive if that student attends one of these schools that uses performance-based assessments. That's right. This story has to do with a new report from the Learning Policy Institute called Assessing College Readiness Through Authentic Student Work, which examines the use of performance assessments for admission to the four-year colleges in the City University of New York system. The study looks at the college success of students from the New York Performance Standards Consortium, which is a network of 38 schools that complete extensive project-based portfolios for graduation. And this report looks at students who were admitted to SUNY through a pilot program. These students scored below the college's entrance exam cut score, but showed promise based on the strength of other admissions materials they submitted, including performance assessments that showed their actual work scored against the rigorous standards the consortium uses to evaluate these portfolios. The report found that students admitted on the strength of performance assessments and their grades actually outperformed other New York City students who had scored higher on the admissions test, achieving higher college GPAs, more credits earned, and greater persistence into the second year of college. Performance assessments, which can include literary analysis, um, scientific investigation, social science research papers, mathematical models, and demonstrations of world language competence. These are an integral part of instruction in consortium schools, providing insight into students' disciplinary knowledge, as well as competencies such as problem solving, collaboration, critical thinking, and communication skills. So Jeff, how surprised are you that students coming from these schools where performance assessments are so important outperformed students who actually scored higher on these college interest exams? Uh, Manuel, not at all surprised, uh, not even slightly. I am incredibly pleased that we see this data um, because I think this could be one of the most interesting developments in the larger kind of discussion and push towards rethinking how we not only frame what the qualifications for college acceptance look like, right, in a world where SAT, GPA, and high-stakes state exams have, have been the dominant forces in the discussion for many decades now, uh, into one where we start to think about, like, well, what does it actually look like to be able to perform at the college level, and what kinds of things actually correlate uh, to, to that success um, when we kind of backwards map them into what kids should be doing in their time in high school and frankly in middle school and elementary school as well. And I have to say, man, well, I, am, I, am, I definitely have a bias in this conversation because folks know I spent you know, most of my career as a teacher and as an administrator uh, in New York City. And although I did not work at a consortium school, I worked with, as a, as a coach for a network of schools, uh, I worked with a bunch of people who kind of came up and came through the consortium schools and the, the philosophy I think around uh, you know what good education can look like that is embodied in the consortium has certainly shaped a lot of my thinking. Um, but I have also had the privilege to sit on the evaluation panels that observe students perform uh, presenting their um, performance-based assessment tax uh, tasks, otherwise known as PBATs, right? 
to sit on those panels and actually watch students and, and you know, evaluate and give feedback to students on their work, right? And it is an amazing experience, both for the young people, for the educators involved, and for folks like me who are kind of guests, uh, you know, making the audience a bit more authentic uh, for the students. And so to have actually seen that process at play and compare that to what is involved in simply sitting down to take a standardized assessment and you know waiting for your score it's a radically different experience that shapes what kids spend their time doing in class in a totally different way and um i you know these schools are fascinating places they are you know certainly a diverse collection of schools but lest someone think that they're schools that are you know sort of elite academies or schools that you know only serve the wealthy kids in town or are you know, magnet programs that like only the top test scoring kids in the city can get into. Uh, that's certainly not the case for the, the consortium schools in New York City. Um, and, you know, this is, I think they're serving as a bit of a proof point for what a different type of reality about college readiness and about what we spend our time on in schools can look like for schools serving regular people's kids, right? Um, so in urban areas and rural areas, uh, right? Like the, the masses of folks across this country um, don't have to spend our time just doing no child left behind test prep um, at the, at, certainly at the volume uh, that, that we tend to do in traditional K-12 education, even still today. Uh, so I'm super excited to, to see this results, uh, these results, Manuel. They don't surprise me, but I'm, I'm excited about it. And in this COVID era, I'm like, let's do things differently. The consortium's a great model. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with all of that. I mean, and this is the perfect episode to have this discussion because our guest, he wrote the book, This Is Not a Test, and he criticized standardized testing like early on before before it was just a, a popular thing to do. And he also recently was part of a webinar through our alma mater, uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he mentioned during during the discussion, he mentioned the, the importance of classroom teachers offering students multiple ways to demonstrate what they've learned. And he talked about how no matter if you're a math or, or a physics teacher or something, you shouldn't just have the one assessment that students have to pass to earn their grade. You should offer students multiple ways to demonstrate their, their learning, even if it's, you know, narrative or, or storytelling or something like that. And these performance assessments, I mean, performance assessments for the win. It sounds like these consortium schools are doing just that. And I'm not surprised that they're, these students are doing or outperforming their peers in college because, I mean, this is just something that's much more rigorous than sitting down and taking a, a you know, one-shot high-stakes test for sure. And a few episodes ago, we talked about that story out of the Washington Post by Valerie Strauss, where she questioned whether or not standardized testing is on the way out, generally speaking, because of the pandemic and how many tests have been canceled because of the pandemic. And I hope that this is a sign of things to come, this performance assessment model, because this is just so much better than, than standardized testing, in my opinion. Now, as a teacher who's who struggled with grading, I mean, when the pandemic first started and I saw the um, just the impossibility of, of being able to grade students during the pandemic, I wrote the essay, give them all A's. And as a result of that, I connected with some folks and thanks to the good folks at Teachers Going Grade List and a number of others, like I'm really rethinking my grading my grading practices with my students because, I mean, this is 
this is this is the time. I mean, if not now, when? If not during the pandemic, when are we actually going to reimagine education? And when are we actually going to break apart the oppressive systems that that have existed? Oppressive systems such as inequitable grading. And of course, the UC system famously struck down the use of the SAT and the ACT as admission requirements for freshmen, and they're developing their own assessment for college readiness. And I think these consortium schools here are onto something. I, I definitely love it. Yeah, I, so I want to like offer up a couple of, of points there, Manuel, and kind of clarify maybe a couple of things. So, you know, folks who watch the show regularly know that Manuel and I have slightly different positions on, on standardized assessment. Um, you know, I do think there's a very important role for standardized assessment uh, and a really strong equity imperative that we have some standardized assessments, right? Because it's how we make comparisons across large populations. But I do want to point out, one, the consortium schools are not entirely free from standardized assessments. So I, 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 this policy may have changed since I have left New York, but certainly in the time that I was there, the students still took one of the five uh, required regents exams for high school graduation. They still took the English exam. Um, so I'd have to double check if that's still the case or maybe. Yeah, yeah they still take that okay. one. They still take that one. Yeah. So they're not entirely free from standardized but, but assessments. But they're not addicted and, to them, Jeff. That's the um, thing. You know, they're that's not addicted a, that's, to these tests. Exactly. Ex that's exactly my point, right? Is, is like the balance that's in place, right, uh, is important. The other thing is they are called the New York Performance Standards Consortium. The assessments that they give are assessed, right? The tasks the students do are assessed on common rubrics across all of the consortium schools. And the teachers and the adults in, the, in their network go through like some norming and calibration um, to, to establish like what does this level of performance look like, right? So that we can have a common bar. What they're doing though is instead of having the assessment be a one-off, you know, single sitting high stakes test. It is a performance task that students work on, revise their work, enhance their work, receive feedback, right? Have opportunities to present it multiple times if need be, right? If they don't meet the expectations, they revise uh, and go back and present again, right? So it's, it's not that there are no standards and there is no type of standardized assessment. It is, the, it is a different thing that the kids are being asked to work on and therefore a different thing that the adults spend their time and energy helping kids get good at, right? Instead, instead of trying to identify the main idea, they're writing about something meaningful and juicy, right? Yeah, and that, that's um, and the so, thing there, Jeff. I mean, you look at the SBAC, a student has one opportunity on that test and, and whatever the score comes out to, that's what it comes out to. So, you know, with these performance assessments, students have multiple opportunities and multiple methods to demonstrate their learning and that's just so much better. So I'm not, I'm not against testing in general. I'm not against assessments for sure. And I'm not against assessments based on standards, but I am against that idea of a high stakes test that has so much to do with everything from school accountability measures to where that student might end up. I mean, definitely I'm hoping these are uh, uh, these performance assessments are a sign of things to come and a step away from that high stakes yeah. testing addiction. Yep. Yeah. I think folks, this, we, we may have found the happy meeting place of Manuel. Yeah. Happy meeting and place. I, happy and meeting my... place to begin the year. That's what I'm yes. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff, we should get on to the next story because we have a really big guest joining us later. So what's the next grade for today's do now? Uh, today, Manuel, this grade is an I for incomplete. Incomplete? 
outstanding, incomplete? What kind of what kind of well, non-traditional grades are these? What kind yeah, of yeah, man? Stuff it's a is weird this, non-traditional time. I think I think it's a sign of the times, Manuel. Uh, but this this eye for incomplete comes to us from uh, the the you know the epitome of the ivory tower. Uh, Harvard University, way out in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and this story uh, comes to us from Laura Krantz um, and Deirdre Fernandez, uh, writers uh, in the Boston Globe. Um, and they're reporting about Harvard University's uh, level of incoming students who are deferring their admission. So given this just sort of historic uncertainty of the COVID crisis, there are large droves of first-year students at elite institutions across the country who are choosing to defer their admission for a year. Currently, 20% of Harvard first-year students are opting to defer their admission, the school announced a few weeks ago, as students decide to take a gap year rather than start their education online amid the pandemic. Now, in normal times, between 100 and 130 incoming Harvard first-year students defer their enrollment to do things like volunteer or travel um, or even get a job. This fall, 340 first-year students, uh, which amounts to about 20% of the traditional um, 1,650 student class, have opted for deferment. Now, Harvard uh, anticipates that significantly fewer undergraduates overall will enroll this fall, and there are many universities across the country experiencing uh, similar doubts or similar phenomenon. Um, all of Harvard's undergraduate courses will be taught online, but the college is permitting some students to live in dorms if they need to, particularly for any academic reasons. Uh, right down the road from Harvard in Cambridge um, at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 8% of first-year students deferred, which is up for them from uh, what's normally only about 1%. Um, Harvard said it was premature to provide specific numbers on the share of sophomores, juniors, and seniors who are planning to take leaves of absence for a semester or year. Um, those applications for leave are approved on a continuing basis. But, you know, Manuel, this, this is, uh, of course, big news because Harvard's such a big name in the field of higher education, but certainly something that's being seen and, and dealt with in schools across the country. What say you about this phenomenon? Yeah, well, as a teacher who serves in California, not a lot of my students move on over to the East Coast for college. So that 20% drop at Harvard, I mean, Harvard will be fine. Harvard will survive. I'm not too concerned with Harvard. I'm more concerned with my students here and what, what this year means for them. Because, I mean, of course, it's not just the so-called elite students at elite schools that are rethinking whether or not they want to go to college this fall. It's everybody, all right? And, I mean, this pandemic, I mean, if online learning is not your thing, then it's very legitimate to consider whether or not you want to start college right now under these circumstances. It's very legitimate to question whether or not you want to spend any money on a, a style of learning that just doesn't work for you. So for sure. So I'm concerned about my own students because so many of my seniors that who just graduated were off to go to UCs and Cal States and, and community colleges. And I'm really curious what their thinking is right now about whether or not they still want to start at, you know, whatever college they got into and were excited about because just about every college that I know of is going to start the year off online. And when you're talking when you're looking at how expensive college is and you know, tuitions haven't doesn't don't seem to have been adjusted at any of these colleges, I mean it's fair to ask, do I want to spend that much for an online 
class at USC when I could do an online class on my local community college and save a ton of money. So the financial consideration right there, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, online learning, of course, not all online learning is the same. So the online learning that you get from a UCLA, it might look different than the online learning you get at a Pasadena City College. Actually, the online learning at that Pasadena City College might actually be better than the learning you're going to get at a USC or UCLA in terms of the online element of it, just based on the fact that, you know, a lot of these uh, professors at these elite institutions are there for the research and resources, not necessarily for the pedagogy. So, I mean, pedagogically speaking, maybe the community college version of it will be better for you. But all that aside, I mean, this is such a time of uncertainty. And if online learning isn't your thing, why not take this year to explore something else? Why not take this year to write, to really try to figure out what you want to do with your life? Because there's so much pressure to go to college. Maybe this is the perfect time out on that pressure for folks to, to think and reconsider what they want. I'm also concerned about the our local colleges and, and what next year will look like. Because if you have waves of students deferring their admission this year, does that mean fewer students are going to be admitted next year as colleges think about this bigger group that's going to be coming in who deferred? So I'm really considered, I'm really curious about if there's going to be like a backlog effect to it. But um, most of all, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about my students and what preparation did we give them to help them with this decision-making process? I could tell you right now at my school in my district, like this conversation didn't come up at all. So I can only assume that last year's seniors are out there just floating in the wind, getting whatever support they can from their own family and making this decision. And I really think high schools especially need to think about how they want to discuss the current environment and the future of college with their students, considering that, um, more and more kids are going to be online and maybe that's not really their thing. So yeah, man, it's, it's, it's a mess, like everything, just a flat out mess. Yeah. You know, I, I largely agree with what you're saying. I think I want to bring a slightly different perspective to it, which is, um, you know, the thinking about the impact of this on educators at the higher ed level. And I guess not even only just educators, but all of the people who work at universities, right? So this phenomenon of folks deferring, I think it largely across the board from, from what we're seeing, there is some generally expected downward trend in higher ed enrollment across the, across the board this year, right? Now, there's a million different reasons for that, right? Do we, do we wanna wait because the experience isn't gonna be as good if it's virtual? Do people just have economic hardship related to job loss and things now and can't afford to go? You know, is community college a better option if it's gonna be online? All those kind of things, right? Um, but then parallel to that, there's been this big discussion about like, well, how come schools like Harvard and schools like USC and, you know, um, or even state institutions, right, are not dropping tuition during this time, right? Folks are saying, how come I'm still paying the same amount if I don't get the, the you know, perhaps as enrich uh, as enriching of an experience as I would normally get. And I think it's, it's an interesting, totally valid question, right? But first of all, we have to also look at what tuition actually pays for, right? So people are not paying, like your tuition doesn't pay for your dorm room. It doesn't pay for your, you know, your meal plan, right? So if you're virtual at your college, you're not paying all of those costs. Um, tuition is really covering like the operating costs of the college's educational enterprise, right? So faculty, 
buildings, administration, those sorts of things, right? And those things still have to exist even if you are on, you know, on a virtual level and at least need to exist in something close to the same condition that they currently exist because we could go back to physical school six months from now, right? And you don't want to totally transform yourself into a school that's going to be permanently virtual uh, if this is a temporary condition. So universities are facing a lot of big financial questions right now. Universities have done, you know, uh, shady things to skyrocket costs uh, over the years and are perhaps having to lie in the, in the bed that they have made uh, on some level here. But for example, my sister is a, um, a therapist who works at a university in the state of Florida, right? Now, this university is expecting significant, you know, reductions in number of students attending. And guess what happens? Students, uh, you know, activity fee pays for the cost of the counseling center on the campus, right? So if students don't come, they're talking about laying off, right? Or furloughing, um, you know, essential services like counseling um, in our, you know, in our universities, right? And so there's a ripple effect behind this that isn't getting a lot of attention, but we're talking about, you know, serious potential job loss, right? If the students don't come, the dollars aren't there, and there's gonna be a whole bunch of, you know, really well-educated, skilled professionals um, in the kind of larger education ecosystem out of work. So this, this is an even bigger equation than just the kind of interesting question of do the, do the students come yeah. or do they not come? Yeah, well, we'll see what the long-term impact is. I mean, I, I feel for these colleges, they're, they're losing yeah. out on a ton of revenue. We're not just talking the tuition, but also, you know, dorm fees. A lot of these colleges that rely on sports programs for revenue, they're going to be missing out on that because it doesn't look like we're really going to have college sports this fall, like no matter what anybody says. So yeah, again, it's a mess. Yeah. All right. So folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. We have a super dope seminar coming up with the Jose Vilson. You don't want to miss out. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for checking out All The Above. We appreciate you watching the show and being a supporter of us. And many folks wonder, how can I support the show? It's super easy. All you have to do is go to aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find all of the ways that you can contribute. This show, it's a small production. It's me, it's Manuel, that's it all the filming, all the editing, this fancy new studio setup, all of it comes from us. And every bit of support we get from our viewers and our subscribers helps make this show happen. So again, go to aotashow.com support. You can contribute via Venmo, via Cash App, or you can subscribe on Anchor. Everything you do is a huge part of our success. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, now it's time for today's seminar. I'm so excited about today's seminar. Now, for myself as a teacher, this summer was very, very difficult, like it was for most teachers out there with all the uncertainty over reopening schools and the pandemic and all that stuff. It was just a very hard summer. But towards the end of the summer, there was a virtual summit, the Educolor Summit 2020, that really recharged me and really gave me life and really, really helped me with just wrapping my head around this upcoming school year. All right, and the executive director of Educolor is here with us today 
to share with us a little bit about his his work as a math teacher and his advocacy and his his just just all that he is involved with and all that he does. So Jose, thank you so much for taking time out to be here with us on all of the above. Of course, thank you for having me, man. Yeah, so let me tell our, our audience members, our viewers and listeners a little bit about who you are and your background. So Jose Luis Wilson is a full-time math teacher, writer, speaker, and activist in New York City. He is the author of This Is Not A Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. And he has spoken about education, math, and race for a number of organizations and publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, TED, El Diario, and The Atlantic. He's a national board certified teacher, a Math for America master teacher, and the executive director of Educolor, an organization dedicated to race and social justice issues in education. All right, so excited for this. Jeff, I believe you have the first question. Yes, well, Jose, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to, uh, to meet you through the Zoom machine here. Um, and uh, we're just excited to have you on the show. And our first question, I, I think you're someone who maybe is, uh, you know, one of the most uniquely qualified people to really speak on this. Uh, but in this moment where kind of everybody's talking about racial justice and anti-racism, when it comes to school, I think most people are very comfortable thinking about um, the place in the curriculum where that conversation belongs is, you know, your, your social studies classes, your English classes, you know, maybe some of your electives, but um, the other subjects, right, your math, your science, uh, you know, people just have a hard time figuring out, like, well, where do these conversations belong in those disciplines? And frankly, a lot of educators uh, who teach in those disciplines have, you know, kind of the same question themselves. And you've written about and spoken about, uh, you know, some ways in which the work and the discussions of anti-racism can be present in the mathematics curriculum. I'm wondering if you can uh, speak on that a little bit now and kind of tell us, like, what are your thoughts on what anti-racism can and should look like in the mathematics classroom? I guess for me, when I'm thinking about the um, I guess the term anti-racism, which is, you know, any number of things, anti-oppression uh, related, anti-identity uh, marker stash oppression. <laughs> it's a lot. But I feel like uh, math especially is in a position where you can actually create any number of tools to be able to develop um, ways to at least create models, if not outright deconstruct what racism looks like. For example, the ability for people to create uh, something concrete and then uh, abstract it to the point where you can make a general rule about it, that sounds like a math term, but it's also a really good way for us to approach uh, anti-racism because that's how race the theorists go about their work. They see an instance and then they're able to abstract it to any number of situations that fit that bill. And so they, I think a lot of what building math is about is also about creating frameworks by which we can actually help explain or at least understand, even when it's not as perfect, being able to understand what's happening in the world today. And so um, it does go beyond just graphs and um, I guess slopes or whatever have you. It actually goes way deep into trying to use the part of the brain that suggests that you can create of frameworks and mindsets around uh, really abstract things that don't necessarily have a uh, human connection per se, and then try to make them as human as possible, uh, all while trying to figure out what those margins of error are going to be. Mm. 
But if we do that, Jose, how are they going to solve for mm. X? How are they going to know that Y equals MX plus B? I mean, I hear you. That's funny. Um, it's kind of like what, what my kids say. Like, I got all these X's and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> bad jokes. Right. So, yeah. you know, a part of me feels like, yeah, I mean, you think about life generally, we have any number of variables that are constantly moving, and yet we're still trying to find ways to make connections with those variables. So Y equals MX plus B is super relevant, especially as it you know pertains to this pandemic, right? Like how many times do you see graphs, for example, where they're trying to say we have this coronavirus under control, but then they didn't actually fix what the X and Y axes are supposed to look like in the graph. Like we can actually be uh, manipulated through numbers when people don't actually understand the math too. So those of us who are of color, especially know that, you know, what we don't know can kill us. And so we are very uh, attuned to this idea that we need, we need social justice for math and we need math for social justice. And they are intertwined in the way of trying to understand how people can manipulate any number of people. So, so I, I'm all, I'm all in for, trying to make sure that we can use math in ways that even when they don't seem like they're connected to whatever subject area it is, it ends up connecting anyway because it's a nice thing to have in your toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of those graphs and charts um, that you mentioned. I mean, we've, I've, I saw a few graphs the other day that supposedly shows coronavirus over time in one particular area and the graph, each graph looks the same, but really all they, all they did is change the scale on the graph to make it look like cases weren't, weren't growing. So they're trying to pull the okie doke on people. But if folks have the, the math background and foundation that, that you described, then that okie doke ain't gonna work. So absolutely. Um, so I, I, I want to ask you. You know, you've been speaking out and and writing and being a voice um, against injustice and, and a voice for racial justice and a voice for social justice and a voice for equity for a very long time, way back before it was safe and popular to do so. So of course now everybody's talking anti-racism. Of course now everyone's talking about dismantling oppression and dismantling this and that. But I mean, you were saying these things years ago before, before it was easy or, or comfortable or popular to do so. So I want to ask you about where where you found that voice and that courage to to speak out against these inequities, especially within your own school system. Because if I'm not mistaken, your your blog was was infamously blocked inside of um, New York City Department of Ed schools. And you know, there's a lot of teachers out there that want to speak out about or speak out against their school or school system, but are afraid to do so because of the you know the possible repercussions there. So I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about where you find the the courage and the heart to continue to speak out even though it you know is going to make things uncomfortable around you and you've been doing this since since before it was a, a popular thing to do so tell us about that well what i'll say is that i'm very fortunate for a bunch of reasons growing up in the lower east side of manhattan i was able to uh attend the boys club after school and in the boys club there was a couple of folks who said we need to find a way to uh get a lot of our black and brown boys to understand what was, what's been happening uh, with their own lives, even if their own schools aren't teaching them. I guess in a way it was um, a boys club on the surface, but then a freedom school quietly. So I was pulled in with any number of people with free cookies and soda and in exchange, all you would have to do is watch this movie. The movie was a documentary, was a documentary called Eyes on the Prize, which is the seminal, uh, I guess, production 
related to the civil rights movement. So, you know, as in my mind, I, I had already had some seeds planted in me around seeing people hung from trees in public. When you see things like that and you're like maybe 10, 11 years old, like you're, you become less afraid. You see the connections between what's happening with Rodney King and all these other, and Amadou Diallo as you're growing up. And even though you don't necessarily have the language for it, you actually start acclimating to, you know, what was being told to you all those years ago. And then what gave me the language was actually uh, college, Syracuse University. I was able to see any number of people. You talk about Amir Baraka, Bobby Seal, Angela Davis, like, and they were just pouring into me, pouring into me. And I didn't even know it at the time. But by the time I got to my junior, senior year, I was all about it. Like, I was fully open to what was going on back when uh, the word woke actually meant something. So, <laughs> and now... Uh, you know, thinking about what's happening now and how, you know, everybody wants to be on the anti-racism train, it I find it I find it weird but also inspiring because on the one end, anti-racism has become more mainstream, but at the same time, there's almost not a danger associated with being anti-racism. There's less of a danger. So, you know, when I did start talking and talking back, and I'm talking about in the way that um and Bell Hooks would say, talking back, right, in, in a really profound way towards any power or authority figures. And my blog was blocked from every, any number of computers all across NYC Department of Education, except in the administration buildings where they were totally mm. loving my blog or loving to hate huh. it, as I was told. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was fun to hear. Um, it, it got unblocked recently because of who the chancellor is now and his his initiatives to become more anti-racist and, you know, be culturally responsive. And I happen to be one of those voices that's been doing it for years. But uh, all that said, right, um, it, it's inspiring to see how it's becoming more anti-racist. You know, the, we're having more of these conversations about anti-racism, but at the same time, I'm like, y'all are in so much less danger. <laughs> than I was of losing mm. my job of any number Heard of that. things that happened to any number of, of colleagues uh, who were trying to really be radical and about that life. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad to hear it, uh, it got unblocked. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, man. Well, and I were talking a bit before you, uh, before you hopped on with us. And I was like, you know, was, was it blocked, blocked? Or was it just like part of that, uh, you know, that era where like everything was blocked? Uh, so, blocked, um, blocked. you know, glad to hear that like the, uh, you know, the chains have been cast off and uh, your words can now be out there in, in schools across the system, uh, Jose. Um, uh, pivoting a little bit, I want to ask you a question about the, the kind of moment we're in and its impact on math instruction, because, um, you know, obviously with with virtual school being such uh, a dominant presence across the country and even in districts um, like yours, which are planning for, um, you know, for some implementation, at least of, of physical school, uh, still a great portion of learning, you know, for students is going to be expected to be done at home. And math is is perhaps unique among a lot of the, you know, the, the, the content areas in school where one, there's a good chunk of people that sort of have this phobia, this fear uh, of math and and two, um, perhaps more than some other subjects, parents often maybe feel 
unable to help their children um, with math in, in a way that maybe they feel more confident with, with you know, reading or English language arts or, or other subject areas. So I wonder if you can, can kind of speak about that and also give us some insights into, uh, from your perspective as a, you know, as, a, as a renowned math educator, what should students and families experience with mathematics and math learning look like in this virtual or hybrid world this fall? Where I wish there was a bridge before the pandemic was that people need to understand the common core math standards, for example, pretty much were born from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics Standards, where we tried to talk more about exploration and constructivist ideas when it came to math, and more importantly, how people actually do math in real life and not the way that it was taught to us before. Like, no one is taking, um, let's say, a two-digit number, multiplying it by a one-digit number, and then doing the carrying over, whatever have you. They're using whatever mechanisms they can to be able to take apart whatever number it is and then put it back together. Here's a good example. When you're at a restaurant, right, and you want to find the 20% tip, you don't take out, like, you don't start changing the percent into a decimal and then take that decimal and try to multiply each number, right? Instead, you take the number, you estimate it to the best, the easiest number possible, the most compatible, then you multiply it maybe by, um, I don't know, by 10 to 20, and then you move the decimal however many times you need to move it, yeah? So um, <laughs> if people had understood that part about Common Core Math that I don't see, um, I, I wouldn't have seen as much struggle or as much fight back about the Common Core. And so where I'm kind of um, trying to work with this in my mind is, especially in homes where there's going to be that inequity, a big part of me wants to say, you know what, parents, do whatever you got to do. Just go ahead and teach it the way that you learned it. And we're going to try to, you know, build the bridges wherever we can. Because, you know, like those of us who are acclimated to the common core version of doing math, we are definitely going to give our kids a leg up in a way that a lot of parents who didn't have that access, you know, don't necessarily have it, right? At the same time, a part of me feels like there are some parents who are probably going to find ways to be creative about how kids learn the math in ways that us as teachers, we would then need to learn ourselves too. So that community conversation is so critical. And then being able to show each other how to do it is, is going to be a real powerful tool for us to build the bridge for whenever we meet again and hopefully we can meet again <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if you can actually if i can ask you to say a little bit more about that right because you hear you there's all kinds of videos and memes online of folks like you know this is this is what common core math is and it's you know it's always some like convoluted uh you know problem that doesn't make sense or something like that but um but i'm wondering if you could share a little bit more right like the some of the things that are just distinct about the, the quote unquote common core math error, right? Like problems that don't have one right answer or, you know, an emphasis on explaining your thinking rather than just like which answer did you arrive at? Why, why do you see those things as being important and how do you connect the dots between like equity and anti-racism and that type of mathematical thinking? Let's talk income inequality. Um, Thinking about how people don't understand that a billion dollars is a hundred million dollars is a million thousand dollars. <laughs> I mean, those degrees are 
uh, a, a core of what it means to understand Common Core math. The way that kids are playing with number sense now when it comes to Common Core math were not ways that a lot of us were growing up uh, learning how to do the math. And then without that numeracy, without that foundational understanding of the degrees by which um, we get to understand these big numbers. If we don't have that backbone, then we can't turn that into like real life understandings about why people say that a billionaire is a policy failure, right? So when I ask people in eighth grade, for example, to try to turn a number into scientific notation using a base 10 and then an exponent, kids should be able to understand a few things. Number one is that they're able to estimate just the most important numbers. So like, let's say you had a number that like was seven digits long. They're going to look at the place values and say, all right, the ones that I would rather lose are the ones that are in the ones and the tens and not in the millions and billions. Okay, so fine, we'll go with that. Then they understand that base 10 is the one base that we use to count because we have 10 fingers. And then also that we can use that base 10 to keep the same digits but change their place value. So like as, as you multiply and divide, that's a good thing for you to understand. Then that exponent tells us to what degree like all these other numbers were actually moved or not, whatever you call it, you consider moving, right? So a part of me feels like if we taught it the old way, then it would just be a bunch of numbers on a paper or a calculator just giving us a bunch of digits, right? But then if you understand that that nine in that hundred millions place is $900 million, right? Then you would fully understand why it is that someone who has that much money, it, it's so inappropriate for you to have that when let's say your family is only making a nine in the 10,000s place, right? Or even a nine in the just a straight up thousands place and why that gap is just so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. So um, that sort of resource hoarding, you can't have that conversation without kids having that sort of numeracy. And so that's kind of, that's a really big example, a really easy way to do it. So there's like at least a hundred more examples throughout uh, K through 10 that could possibly apply to this very situation. Dope, dope. Well, this history teacher approves of that math lesson. In fact, I might have some of my students watch that clip when we talk about housing inequality because that right there, um, yeah, that's super dope. So obviously, uh, math pedagogy on point, uh, speaker, author, activist, um, you've done so much and you've been such an advocate um, in education for so long. The people wanna know what's next for Jose Wilson. Well, at this moment in time, I have made a decision to go full-time to Columbia University as part of the education policy program. And so I've decided to uh, take a temporary leave from the classroom for the time being and move directly into really getting better about policy and education policy. Because I do really believe that having a good understanding about research and policy may transform any number of classrooms out there. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations, congratulations. Man, that's big time. Man, uh, look, classroom teacher like myself, a little bit of my heart hurts anytime a super dope educator um, considers moving on from the classroom. So, you know, the teacher part of me is like, ah, but absolutely, absolutely, that's super dope. Now, you know, I know folks have joked about and you, uh, you know, wrote a blog post about the the meme about you being ed secretary one day, but I don't know, a, a, 
doctorate from Columbia after all that you already accomplished in education. I mean, it kind of sounds like it's kind of on the way to that one day, perhaps under the presidency of a, a AOC or something super dope like that. So again, congratulations, man. That's that's super big time. Um, I am curious, though, you know, you've been in the classroom for so many years. How how difficult of a decision was this for you? It was probably one of the more the, the hardest decision of my life, if I'm not if I'm being honest with you. I mean, everything else, I wouldn't say it was easy to do, but, you know, being a teacher, for example, was a very easy thing for me to decide. Being, you know, even going to any number of schools that I've gone to, very easy to decide. Um, but when it came to this teaching thing, like teaching is part of my identity. And I think about some of the biggest scholars who I respect, whether it be Pedro Nogueira, um, Linda Darling Hammond, Christopher Emden, uh, a bunch of folks who I know at least stayed about 15 years in schools uh, as either classroom teachers or as administrators. And so um, a part of me felt like I could have held on a little longer, but I also recognized that at the time that I was already starting to apply, um, it was either going to be me or the system, and I chose myself. Um, and of course, shout outs to my current principal, who she's fantastic now, but like, at the time that I was applying, I did not have such a fantastic principal. So that made my decision a little easier to do. But then, you know, at this point in time, I'm kind of mourning too, because I finally got the principal that aligned to my values and, and systems. And um, it didn't work out the way that I had necessarily wanted, but at least I got to leave on my own terms. Yeah, man, I love it. I love it. Again, congratulations on that decision. That's, that's, um, Man, super proud of you. Um, I think I can speak for all teachers when I say we will be feeling very good knowing that you're out there in the policy and research space fighting for uh, fighting for our students and fighting on, on the behalf of school. So again, super dope. Uh, congratulations. And thank you again for taking the time to be here on All of the Above with us. Um, we very much appreciated the conversation. Uh, where can folks who, who want to uh, read some of your stuff and, and follow you more, where can they find you? thejosevilson.com is my website. T-H-E-J-L-V is my uh, Twitter, which I'm hyperactive in, as well as my Facebook. Uh, for Instagram, it's T-H-E-J-O-S-E-V-I-L-S-O-N. And um, that's pretty much where you should go find me. I mean, if you want to Google me, by all means. But generally speaking, that's where I'm at. All right, folks. We out to you. That about does it for today's seminar. Up next is Class Dismissed, where we like to take a moment to shout out folks doing great things in the world of education. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? We hope you're enjoying this episode of All of the Above, and we want to encourage you to share this with folks in your circle, folks who might appreciate these critical conversations around education that we have here on our show. We are a small operation. It's really just me and Jeff, that's it. So anything you could do to recommend this to your, your colleagues or your family members or your peers will be very much appreciated. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we give shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we have for today? Well, Manuel, I'm excited because today we are going to give some props to someone who's, he's a huge fan of the show, man. Uh, and it's its nice to be able to kind of return the favor uh, with today's Class Dismissed. But um, some of you may know him from commenting on our Twitter page. 
His name is Brian Tabatabai, and he is a local educator here in the Los, in the greater Los Angeles area, um, out in West Covina, in fact. Um, so we're going to give a, a little shout out to Brian Tabatabai, who is, I think, modeling something that, that we talked about earlier on this episode, and we talked a lot about over the years, really, which is, you know, the importance of voice of educators in the larger national discourse, or in this case, in the larger local discourse about policy, because we know what happens in school is so affected by what happens around school. And Brian is, uh, has announced his candidacy running for city council out in West Covina. Yeah, you love to see it. Teachers getting involved in local politics. Super dope. Shout out to Brian. Um, best of luck with your campaign. And um, folks, that about does it for today's episode of All of the Above. All right. So uh, remember, you could go over to our website, aotashow.com, and dig through the crates and look at all of our past episodes. Um, thank you so much for being part, and we shall see you next time. <laughs>